say if I told you there was a wondrous substance that could span political divides. Barack Obama has been known to enjoy it straight from the bottle. Brett Kavanaugh famously likes it. Politicians are often described as someone you either would or wouldn't want to have one with. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Today, we're talking about beer. It's science, it's history, and its impact on human culture. Joining me is Rob DeSaul, curator at the American Museum of Natural History's Sackler Institute for Comparative Biology and co-author with Ian Tattersall of A Natural History of Beer. Rob, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Michael. So just uh, how much of a chore was it to have to research this book and try out all these beers for, you know, science? It was really hard work, let me <laughs> tell you. Uh, my colleague Ian Tattersall and I tasted over 500, 600 beers in putting the book together and also made a trip to Oktoberfest. So it was pretty rough going. <laughs> so do you have a, a favorite style of beer to drink? My, my favorite styles kind of switch with, with the seasons and kind of uh, switch with, with uh, how I feel. Um, you know, I, I enjoy <clears throat> a, a nice crisp lager and Equally enjoy a, a, a deep, hoppy double IPA or triple IPA. So it's just a, a, a moody kind of thing. But that's the, the wonderful thing about beer um, is that it's got such a range of tastes and texture and, and color and all kinds of things that, that um, kind of allow you to, to match your mood or match your psyche with, with uh, the, the, the right taste. And you are a, a home brewer as well, right? Yeah, I, I started brewing at home about 20 years ago. Um, kind of late for a person who does home brewing. But yeah, it's a, it's a very therapeutic kind of a activity. And you get the extra added plus of the beer at the end of it, which <laughs> always turn out okay. So, so um, <laughs> yeah, I recommend it to everybody, people of all ages, uh, above the drinking age. I recommend it. So how do humans uh, first start brewing beer? Um, there's a controversy about that, and, and the controversy is, did bread or beer come first? Because uh, the um, yeast that is used in making bread uh, is also the same species of yeast that's, that's used in making beer. And we know the ancients did both, made beer and made bread, but we aren't certain which came first. The, the idea to brew beer could have arisen from, say, an overly sweet bread made uh, that fermented and got squashed up in something and somebody drank it and said, oh, hey, this is a, it's a good way to do this. Or it could be that beer was personally made to the specifications of the, of the person who first made it. There are vessels that uh, archaeologists find all the time that have residue of beer in them. And in fact, some of these vessels uh, have provided researchers and, and beer makers with recipes for uh, making beer. So if you're asking me about the timing, 
it's probably around the same time as the cultivation of, say, barley. Um, uh, barley is the major grain component of beer. And it, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, once you understand how to harvest barley, that um, you'd start doing all kinds of things with it, like making uh, bread or, or um, making beverages from it. And you mentioned these these sort of uh, ancient brews that some beer makers, uh, brewers have come up with. Uh, I think of Dogfish Head as one of the ones that have done that. The, these are based on scientific analysis of the vessels. So if you drink one of these, if I drink a Midas Touch, for example, how close is that experience uh, roughly to you know drinking what what people were drinking three thousand years ago almost? Probably um, in the ballpark, <laughs> uh, the exact proportions of say barley and and uh, water and yeast. Uh, well, they, the ancients didn't know about yeast; it kind of came along with the with the barley or with the water. Probably pretty close, at least in the ballpark. And you can never hit something right on. As we know in modern brewing with the big industrial brewers, uh, their job is to brew a beer that's consistent from batch to batch. So little tweaks in the recipe cause tweaks in what it tastes like. So it's hard to say that you're tasting exactly what, say, uh, King Midas was tasting when he (laughs) drank from the vessel that was found from his time. Again, beer is a very pliable thing. You can make it taste one way, make it taste another way. In the book, uh, Ian and I talk about a home brewing experience we had in making gruit. Uh, Gruit is a a beverage. Technically, I I guess you could call it a beer, um, but it's not hopped. Um, Mm -hmm. Hops, we have, I haven't mentioned hops yet, but hops are the component of beer that uh, takes the edgy taste away and gives it a hoppy taste. And gruits were brewed before hops started to be placed into into beer. And um, instead of cutting the edgy taste with a hops, they cut it with thyme and uh, uh, rosemary and spices. And the gruit we made was was quite good, if I do, if I do say so. <laughs> it was a n- nice and sour, but it had a wonderful smell and a, a nice um, thyme rosemary um, kind of a taste to it. So that, I think, is easier to, to mimic. And there, there are some direct recipes, too, that have survived time that um, could allow you to, to make a beer, um, certainly make wine that uh, mimics uh, what, what was uh, tasted hundreds, thousands of years ago. And is there a style of beer that you'd like to see make a comeback or, or a style that's underappreciated? You know, I, I um, like a lot the Pilsners. Mm-hmm. And the Pilsners in the United States are pretty, pretty drab. <laughs> um, but if you, if you go to Europe, uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Czech Republic specifically, you'll get a lot of wonderful different kinds of pilsners. And, you know, I guess in general, what I would, what I would hope to see is just more variety around uh, a major kind of a beer. Mm-hmm. And that variety is what makes that kind of beer interesting, I think, rather than just kind of deadening our taste with a weak American lagers or, or American pilsners. So that's, that's kind of what I would like to, like to see. I think that, that, that there's been a lot of experimentation with with ales, 
Mm-hmm. And that's that's great. That's wonderful. Um, and less experimentation with loggers. Perhaps there's not that much room to experiment with them, but that's where I would like to see a change. It seems like a lot of uh, people who sort of make the jump from uh, the more macro brews, IPAs seem to be sort of the gateway, the gateway beer, as it were. Um, but I'm with you. I, I also uh, really like Pilsners. And I find that uh, two two of the really good ones here are uh, Victory has a really good one, Prima Pils. And um, there's actually a local brewery here in Connecticut, Two Roads, that has a very, very good Pilsner. Yeah. So hope is not lost completely. <laughs> well, I've had both of those, and they are quite, quite good. Uh, but they don't match up to a, a fresh Pilsner mm-hmm. uh, from, say, Prague or, or even from uh, the city of Pils uh, in Czech Republic. So they're close, but but not as crisp. Um, mm-hmm. That ha- probably has something to do with the water that's being used. The hardness of water in the Czech Republic is probably the softest mm-hmm. water uh, used in brewing. And I'm not familiar with how hard the water is in, in Connecticut um, or for victory. Um, but uh, I would assume that there's a difference between water. And then, of course, there's the, the locale. Mm-hmm. Sitting in a, in a cafe in, in Prague drinking a Pilsner is much nicer than sitting in your living room drinking <laughs> a victory of Pilsner. So, you know, the, 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 we, we can't forget that, that, <laughs> that environment and how you drink the beer and who you're drinking it with has a lot to do with uh, the experience. Yeah, so I mean, there are there are basically four main ingredients to beer, right? Water, barley, yeast, and hops. Maybe locale is is an unofficial yeah. ingredient. But how do how do all of these sort of come together to to give us beer and to give us so many varieties of beer? Well, the main thing is the barley, and the barley is uh, goes through um, several kinds of manipulations, uh, malting for one, where you trick the uh, barley into setting and then um, crush it and powder it. Or uh, you can roast the barley and you can roast the barley to different degrees. And this gives the barley different colors, which will then leach into the beer to give you a beer of different colors. Um, Barley is grown all over the Middle East. um, And and of course, uh, here in the United States, but it's endemic uh, places, the Middle East. And there are, I don't know, maybe f- uh, several hundred uh, strains of barley that can be used to do this. I'm not sure if the strains of barley have, have much of an effect. The water, as we as we mentioned, uh, its hardness or softness has an impact on, on the beer. So the, to give you an example, again, the uh, Pilsners made in Pils, Czech Republic, have the, the, the softest waters that are used, whereas, say, an English, English ale or Guinness stout are brewed from waters that are, are really hard, hard meaning that there's a lot of minerals in the water. Uh, yeasts are ubiquitous, and again, they weren't, weren't known to be a part of, of beer until just 100 years or so ago. And um, the yeasts are, are incredibly variable, and it, see, it appears that unlike wine yeasts, which were cultivated to be very, very uniform and so selected against the, the beer uh, yeast seem to have exploded with variation. So there's a lot of different beer yeasts out there, and there's some really great research being done on beer yeasts uh, to, to determine their effect. And then finally, you have hops. And anybody who's a home brewer knows that you can buy anywhere close to maybe 100, 100 different kinds of hops, less, less than 100 maybe half that. Um, so 
there are lots of different strains of hops that are being grown and even some uh, beers that are brewed with hops, close relative marijuana uh, cannabis. So those four ingredients have a lot of variation uh, amongst them. You know, getting the right, you know, it may sound easy just throwing barley, um, malt, water, yeast, and, and hops into a, into a pot, uh, brewing it, and then waiting for it to ferment. It may sound like that's easy, but there's a lot of uh, thought and uh, uh, care that goes into creating a brew. Um, so, yeah, those those four four ingredients are are quite important. And that brings up a good point. One of the interesting things I think in let's say craft beer culture, people might turn their noses up at some of the macro brews, but I, I do find it sort of amazing that they can brew as much as they do and have it taste exactly the same. That's really interesting. You're right, and that's just a careful brewer. Um, you know, the the brewers that that, that started the micro brew or or a craft brew. Um, industry made it very clear that they were uh, also into consistency, mm-hmm. but um, were willing to experiment. So um, that that's the that's what we're looking at with these uh, craft brews. And what sort of I mean variables are there when you're brewing on a smaller level? Obviously, there's all these variables with the ingredients, different yeasts, but are there other variables that, that come into account during the, the brewing or the fermentation process? Sure. I don't want your listeners to think that I, I'm a perfect brewer. Um, <laughs> I've had some pretty bad uh, brews. I, I can kind of trace back to what they were caused by. Um, one major thing is light. Um, if uh, the brew is fermented in light or bottled in a, a light place and, and left to be stored in a light place, then um, you're going to get the beer to skunk, which is a kind of a literal turn. It does stink really bad. You really can't rescue it. So um, that's one one variable. One time I tried to super hop something and that failed miserably. It, it uh, seemed like I was uh, drinking grass. Uh, so that's that's a variable. But you know. If you have a good recipe, um, you're always going to make good beer. If you make sure that you're sterile in the brewing process, and if you make sure that that um, you get the ingredients in and for the right right amounts of time. And is there a science behind the different types of glasses that that you might see beer served in? Is is there actual science behind that, or is that just a preference? I know for a fact that there is a science behind. Uh, or a way of thinking behind wine glasses. Mm-hmm. There, it's very, very interesting uh, as to what shape a glass you use for what vintage of wine. But, you, you know, I'm not sure if there's been any research done on glass shape uh, for for beer. I, I do, I, I think that's another one of the really interesting things about beer is the, the, the variation in the vessels it's served in mm-hmm. and kind of a linkage of a, of a shape of a glass with a, with a kind of beer. I think that's kind of neat. But I don't, uh, I, to answer your question, I don't know of any research that's been done to pin down if that's uh, the case. So obviously one of the effects of, of drinking is that you, you get buzzed or drunk. Why does, why does beer make us uh, drunk? Why, how do we get drunk? <laughs> beer has alcohol in it, of course, and so the uh, when you um, imbibe, uh, the alcohol goes to your stomach and gets absorbed by the lining of your stomach, which then 
proceed stomach and intestines, which then proceeds to uh, your bloodstream and then it travels up to your brain. And alcohol is a is a well known uh, depressant in uh, for the brain. So the the uh, amount of alcohol in a beer is really critical to how fast you get buzz. Of course, um, wine is a little bit different because wine. Uh, almost all wines are up around 14, 13, 14, 15 percent alcohol. So when you're drinking wine, you can kind of pace yourself because you know that it's going to be a consistent <laughs> amount of alcohol. But if you're drinking beer and you're you're sampling different beers, the alcohol content can range from you know two and a half, three percent in some really really light light Amer- American lagers to to um, my colleague uh, Ian Tattersall and I uh, tasted a eighteen um, percent um, uh, beer, mm-hmm. which you know if you drank a pint of that, you'd be totally out of your mind. So, <laughs> uh, whereas you could probably drink two cases of the of the light American lager. So, um, or at least I could because I have a, I have the, the the belly to do it. So, <laughs> the alcohol content has a lot to do with. The fun of, of drinking it, and sometimes the not so much fun of drinking it. I once heard a, a story that um, the the founder of Sam Adams, Jim Cook, eats yeast before he drinks to keep himself from getting drunk. I guess, you know, he goes around and he has a lot of events and things where he's drinking, doesn't necessarily want to get drunk. So he mixes some yeast in yogurt or something and, and eats it beforehand. Um, and that stops him from, from getting drunk. Would that Would that really work? I'm not sure the the yeast is in beer to ferment the beer. It takes the sugars and breaks the sugars down into uh, alcohol and carbon dioxide carbonation. And so uh, I'm trying to think what the yeast might do to your stomach. Um, it might um, interfere with the alcohol getting into the lining of your stomach or something like that. You have to be careful about these anecdotal uh, <laughs> yeah. things because what what works for one person may not work for another. Especially knowing that our stomachs, where the beer first first kind of collects, have different microbes in them from person to person. Mm. So it's, it's, that, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that. And I would think that if it works, then there's some physiological reason for it. So I guess the million dollar question that that gets debated often is, is beer good for us? Yeah, you know, anything in excess is not good for us. Uh, beer has just amazing qualities to it. It has a, most of the time it has a high caloric content. So, you know, if you need calories, then a beer is a good thing to drink. And it, it's also uh, got some proteins floating around in it from the uh, fermentation process. So I wouldn't think that a beer diet would be a good thing. Um, <laughs> although maybe maybe it would. Um, if you regulate the amount of calories that you're taking in and it, it, it uh, doesn't uh, wreck your physiology, then it might be a good, a good diet. But in general, I, I think it's good for your health. And I don't see any reasons why it wouldn't be unless you use it in, in excess. Yeah, and how, I mean, how does alcohol or beer specifically affect someone's microbiome? Um, does it change it noticeably? Is is it, 
do you have a healthier or less healthy microbiome if you're drinking more or less beer? You know, I I, I would like to do that experiment. Uh-huh. I would like to see if the microbiome of someone who hasn't drunk alcohol is different from that of a person who has. The, it's a difficult experiment because unlike getting a general idea of your your gut microbiome from a fecal sample, you actually have to go into the stomach and take a sample and see what, what's happening. Mm. So it's a, that's a difficult experiment, and I'm not not really sure if it's been done, but that would be a really interesting experiment. All right. Well, the book is A Natural History of Beer. Rob, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Michael. It's a great pleasure. That does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.